Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today, I am once again with Jerry Weirwell, and we're talking about the topic of hermeneutics, which is how to interpret the Bible. Jerry is very involved with researching the Bible, and he's currently working on a translation of the Bible called the Revised English Version. And as part of that, he is writing some of the introductions for the various New Testament books. So welcome to Restitutio, Jerry. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here with you. Why do you think hermeneutics is an important topic to talk about? Shouldn't we just be able to read the Bible and understand it immediately? Yeah, that's a tendency a lot of people have when they think about Scripture, is that they can just pick it up and read it and think that they can understand exactly what's written in the Scripture as though it was a short story or a novel like they get at Barnes & Noble. And on one sense, that can be true. However, the one problem that a lot of people don't think about when they read Scripture is that when you read something, you automatically interpret it. And the way you interpret it then is the way that you then assign meaning to it. And so if you don't interpret Scripture with the right sort of viewpoint, you will then be attributing to it a meaning that is foreign to what it was intended to have. And the thing about, you know, interpretation is that we we interpret life all day, every day, all the time. You know, interpretation is part of us understanding and making sense of the world, and it's no less relevant to Scripture as well. The thing about just picking up the Bible and reading it is that, well, it was written long time ago in cultures completely foreign to ours, in different language, actually more than one language, right? and using... completely different types of grammar and linguistic devices. And and so just to think, pick it up and think that you can read it and expect that everything is going to fit together and you're going to really get the whole picture of it is kind of a very short-sighted perspective to have. There are different layers to Scripture, and depending on how deep you want to go, that depends on how far you have to dig. To the person who says, I just read it and I understand it, that person is still interpreting it. They might not be aware of how they're interpreting it, or the, they might not have a set of rules clearly defined, but they are interpreting it. However, because of what you just said, the foreignness of the scriptures to our culture, they're likely to read 21st century American, if they're in America, American ideals into scripture. And the, the joke I like to use for that is what kind of car did the apostles drive? And the answer is, they were in one accord. (laughs) Which which is obviously a ridiculous kind of question to ask of Scripture, but, well, in the 21st century, like, cars are everywhere. How else would the disciples get around, right? I guess I'm being a little silly here, but the point is, we are all interpreting the Bible when we read it, And so the question is not, are we interpreting it? The question is, how good are we doing at that? How attuned are our ears to their voices? I think if you were somebody living in the first century, when these documents were originally penned, 
it would be pretty easy to understand them if you participated in that culture and spoke the language and shared the worldview that they had, it, it would be easy. However, we're so far away from that now that it does take a little bit of effort. I mean, not to say you can't understand anything, though. That's not what you're saying, is it? No. No, there's definitely, I think the gospel message of Scripture is clear. People can pick up and read John 3.16 and understand right. what is going on. God loved the world, sent his son. Why? So that people can be saved and not perish, you know, not die. I think those things are clear on the surface. They're apparent to anybody who can understand just the actual grammar of, the, of those sentences. There's nothing behind it. There's no cultural pretense that's being talked about, no idiom. You know, so I, I think those things are readily perceivable. Yeah, so there are certain aspects of Scripture, certain portions of Scripture that are pretty easy to understand in any age, and then there are others that, because of how our culture has drifted from that culture in the first century, we might be prone to misread them. So what would be some examples or some principles? Well, um, the one thing that is important to understand is that when you read the scripture and you interpret it, that basically makes you a theologian. And I use that in a very loose, broad sense that we're all reading and studying the Bible and trying to understand things about God, about faith, hope, salvation, things of theology. And so everybody who reads the Bible in themselves is a theologian on some sense. And the, the thing that you brought up is really important because it's about, do you have an actual system or framework to understand scripture or are you doing it subjectively based upon your own preconceived ideas or understandings or things you've heard on TV, the media, or at church somewhere? You know, so do you have a method to try to understand the Bible? And so being a theologian to kind of sway away from subjectivity, that's what the purpose of hermeneutics is, is try to have a framework to understand consistently how to approach and, and uh, interpret scripture. Yeah. You know, there's a famous uh, quote by D.A. Carson that's uh, kind of driven a lot of my Bible study, and it's that a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. That's a classic. Yeah, and what it's basically saying is that if you really don't have any framework to understand a verse, you will then use that verse to prove something else that the verse was not intended to prove. Hmm. There's the danger right there. When we're trying to interpret Scripture, the idea is that there are certain principles that form this framework that help us understand the right ways, or actually you say rules by which we can then derive meaning. And the principles are that when you come to interpret scripture, scripture has to be consistent with these rules. And, and there are several different ones that are very important to be mindful of. Well, give us some examples. Well, one of them is the idea that the Bible was written so long ago in a different part of the world, in a different culture from our own with people who had different worldviews, is that you have to understand what's called the historical cultural context of the Bible in order to really see a lot of times what's going on. Specifically, this has to do a lot of times with narrative when there are events and people involved. And a classic example is uh, John chapter four, when uh, Jesus and the disciples go up into Samaria and they go to the area there where Jacob's well is near Sychar. And he talks to this woman at the well while his disciples go off to find some food for them. And the thing about this is when Jesus is talking to this woman, he asks the woman for a drink of water at the well. And his disciples were gone in town at this time. 
And the Samaritan woman turns to him and replies, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why, why is the woman replying to Jesus in this way? Yeah, I mean, that is a good question because in our culture today, it is completely mundane for a man to ask a woman for a drink or for a woman to ask a man for a drink. You know, there's nothing unusual about that sort of request. And yet she's uncomfortable or confused by what Jesus is doing here. Yeah, exactly. And she talks about two differentiations, one, Jesus being a Jew and her being a Samaritan. In order to understand how come she's kind of shocked that Jesus would ask her for a drink goes back to the history of the splitting of Israel with the kingdom of Israel, where with the capital in Samaria, and then the southern kingdom in Jerusalem with, with the to be on the west side. So Samaria is just like a like a taboo place. It was a place that Jews avoided at all costs, and they would walk all the way around to avoid going through it. But Jesus is up here in Samaria talking to this woman. And the woman is just shocked that he's talking to her and interpreting this passage rather than just kind of like seeing that, well, Jesus is talking to the woman and the woman asks him a question. There's a lot deeper meaning behind what Jesus is doing here by crossing these cultural kind of taboos, the, the things that in his culture were seen as, as being unacceptable for a Jewish man to do. And he's also asking for a drink from her and for a Jewish person to ask something of a Samaritan was almost like stooping below them, asking asking for something from a woman in addition, because in the biblical culture, it was very patriarchal. We see Jesus crossing these lines and, and not conforming to the standards of his day or the accepted practices and the segregationist type of mentality that most Jews had at that time. And even we find... Uh, a reason to explain how come when Jesus' disciples return from uh, going to get food, that they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Men and women didn't really associate with each other, specifically alone. You didn't have a, a man and a woman talking in public alone. Right. And so all this fits into understanding what's going on, why the disciples were so surprised, and the reason why they kind of came back and were asking Jesus, you know, why were you talking with her? Almost like in a derogatory type of way. And this is really unusual for disciples to, to have such kind of a remark such as this, as though it was unacceptable. You remind me of another place where Jesus is passing through Samaria and the disciples are with him and they seek to find lodging and everyone turns them away. And the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, should we call down fire so that it may consume them? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is like, what's wrong with you guys? Yeah. Come on. But like they, they were serious because Elijah had done that. So they're mm -hmm. like, all right, these people are rejecting us. Can we just, can we just, can we just burn, burn them? them? Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of animosity there between the Jews and the Samaritans. And uh, there's actually a place in the Talmud that talks about where the Jews described the Samaritans as Kuthians, and it was sort of like a, a slang term they used to uh, slander their blood as being impure and being somebody from Persia or of mixed descent rather than an actual Israelite. And they said that having dealings with the Samaritans was 
like eating the flesh of a pig or touching a menstruating woman. You know, I mean, it was just the Jews really didn't like the Samaritans. Oh, they reviled them so bad. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. In fact, the Jews had conquered Samaria and forcibly converted people not too long before the time of Christ, uh, the year 128 B.C. And as part of that, the priest king John Hyrcanus destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. So, I mean, there's so much bad blood here. It's, it's not even funny. Knowing some of that background really does help us understand how radical Jesus is being when he says to her, can I have a drink of water? I mean, it's just such a simple little request, but yet it's loaded with courage and a radical reaching across prejudice and division. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And even in addition as well, this woman at the well was not some upstanding woman either. No. A very, a very promiscuous She's been around the block. Woman. Yeah. And and so to for all these part all these parts of the picture to come together to understand why the disciples sneered at Jesus for doing this. And I mean, all this comes into understanding and interpreting what actually this passage is yeah. what's happening in this passage. As we have seen in John chapter 4 here with the Samaritan woman, the historical cultural background plays a big part in understanding the meaning of this passage of Scripture. But the historical cultural background is not the only facet of Scripture that's important to understand when trying to discern meaning. The literary context is also extremely important. And this just harkens back to what we read from D.A. Carson in his little quote about that a text without a context uh, becomes a pretext for a proof text. And what he's saying is that when you take a, a passage just and isolate it, you really can't understand what it means, and then you will arbitrarily assign a meaning to it for which it likely did not have. And so when you study the literary context, the number one approach to understand the literary context, first of all, is just to know what is going on in the surrounding passage. And a good example of a text that has been abused in countless different ways by isolating it from its context is Philippians 4.13. And this might be a, a very familiar text to a lot of us because we probably have seen it all over the place on, on for sport teams or if you go look in any Christian bookstore. People will just cite this verse as though it substantiates how come they should be able to do something. And it just reads, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right. This is what I call the Superman verse. If you can memorize and recite this verse, you can do anything. And that's been the way that a lot of people have kind of understood it, that this is a backdrop for how come people think that God will enable them to do just incredibly unexpected things, irregardless of, of whether or not they're physically feasible or if they're in line with God's will at all. It's just, it's a matter of people wanting to have God backing them to accomplish what they're setting out to do, whether it be having a multi-million dollar business, whether it be wanting to jump over a building. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about the Superman verse, people really do take this to the extreme and isolate this text uh, completely away from what Paul's writing here. You know, if we would just step back to verse 10, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned 
in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So what he's talking about here is not being able to leap over a building in a single bound, but how to deal with the circumstances of his life facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. At this time, he's in prison. He's suffering. If he could just conjure up from Christ's strength, superhuman abilities to walk through walls, and he could just get himself out of prison right there. But in fact, what he's talking about here is how to handle situations in life, how to face them without losing his faith, how to face them without letting them get to him or get him out of fellowship with God. And this text is so commonly just completely taken out of its literary context. Oh, yeah, so often it is. And you're absolutely right. You know, Paul is talking about learning the secret of facing these different circumstances. And what that secret is, is up above in verse 11, he says he's learned in whatever situation he is, whatever situation he finds himself to be, he is content. And he's content because it's the power of Christ that strengthens him to endure any and all circumstances. This reminds me of the other frequently used verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, that starts with, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and so on, that people like to use that verse on graduation cards and all over the internet to encourage one another. But in reality, that scripture is taken from the middle of a letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles who have already suffered the wrath of God and are under his judgment. The Babylonians have come. They have taken out Jerusalem, or they're about to take out Jerusalem. And what Jeremiah is telling them is, you're going to suffer. It's going to be 70 years, but eventually God's going to bring you back to the land. And when he does, you're going to prosper. And so to take this one sentence out of that chapter and make it into a mantra of how God only wants us to prosper all the time is really to disregard the meaning of the text itself. Yeah, we can't just take this as some type of a promise that now every single person, God has this exact specific intent for them to be, to give them a land, to give them a hope to come back to. We have to be careful that we read the text of Scripture in its literary context, the way the author or the biblical writer is actually using it. Right. And that's one of, one of the primary things to understand the literary context is just understanding what is going on. It's kind of like when you read a novel and you would pick up a conversation from a novel and you, you don't know why somebody says something because all you see is a one small conversation, yet you, didn't, you don't see any of the dialogue, you don't see any of their interactions right. that happen. And there's no way for you to accurately understand what the person's talking about if you just jump in the middle of the story. It's kind of like if you ever watch a movie halfway in, you can get confused really quick. Yeah, you don't know which, what's going on. Yeah. Looking at Jeremiah 29, 11, this brings up the issue of how we think about inspiration 
and what the Bible is. If we look at the Bible as a crystal ball, that is a book that always speaks directly to us mystically and gives us guidance for our own issues, then you look at that and you say, well, this is God speaking to me now. And I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe in the authority of Scripture. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that although Scripture has something to say to us now, it's not often speaking to us directly now. In other words, when God speaks in Jeremiah 29.11, he's speaking through Jeremiah to the exiles in the 500s B.C., and we can glean from that an understanding of God's heart and recognize that at bottom, he does want people to prosper. He does care about people like a father cares about his children. But at the same time, not take it out of context to say, this verse is all about me and my life right now and how I'm going to take on the world and conquer everything. That's not really how that verse should properly be applied, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it shows also the way that God had promised to bring his people back to the land that the exile wasn't going to be permanent. This is just an exhortation of God's faithfulness that he's going to end up fulfilling what he said. So that in the end, this terrible situation that Israel is experiencing isn't going to be the end of them. God has a plan to reinstate them back into the land of Canaan. So this is all part of the way that God was working with Israel. And so for us to just kind of pluck it out, cherry pick this verse, uh, would be to ignore the way that Jeremiah is trying to communicate his prophecy here. Yeah, another part of understanding the literary context has to do with actually understanding form and structure. And this was a, a really new thing to me uh, until I went to seminary and started studying hermeneutics uh, more formally. The Bible is actually made up of many different types of genres. And whether or not we recognize it consciously, we read different types of genres almost every single day. Whether it comes from reading a book, reading a magazine, newspaper, restaurant menu instruction manual. It could even be motor vehicle signs that tell you which direction to go on the road and, and whatnot. The genre plays a big role in understanding the literary context specifically because it tells us what type of content we should be looking at and how to understand a certain sort of a, an approach to communication. For example, if you read something like the book of Proverbs, it's going to be completely different the way that you read it and understand it as wisdom literature versus something like historical narrative in the book of Chronicles. And the thing to understand about things like wisdom literature is that they're highly poetic. And also, for example, if you would read a couple of Proverbs, uh, you probably come to think about them and wonder, is this something that is absolute? The thing about wisdom literature is that they're just wise sayings. There they're are sayings to help guide a person into a, a righteous life, into a life of, of godliness and things that uh, please the Lord, good works and, and the like. And to try to look at Proverbs and understand them as, as being absolute claims on truth, you would find that they actually, a lot of them contradict each other. Yeah, the one that comes to mind is Proverbs 26, 4, where it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then the next verse, 
answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And if you read those as law rather than as wisdom, then you're going to say, well, this writer is a moron because he's just said one thing and then said the exact opposite in the next verse. And I think that's an uncharitable reading. And if, if you recognize that Proverbs are more like truisms, generally speaking, when the world is operating in the way that it's meant to operate, these things will benefit your life if you do them. Just like a parent would give proverbs or guidance or wisdom to a child. So in verse 4, when it says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself, sometimes that's true. And then in verse 5, where it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes, sometimes that's true. And sometimes you need a wisdom to know what wisdom to apply in the situation. And there are some situations where you need to answer a fool and shut it down. And other times where you need to just let it go, lest you be drawn into it. And both of them would be a wise course. Or like the Psalms, for example. Sometimes the Psalms, like take the most horrifying statement in the Psalms, Psalm 137, at the end where the exile in Babylon, who's just been through unimaginable horror, terror and trauma says O daughter of Babylon doomed to be destroyed blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock I mean if you take that scripture out of context and hang it on your refrigerator blessed be the one who dashes your children against a rock I mean that's totally out of sync with what, how Jesus teaches us to treat our enemies, for example, or even how the law teaches us to deal with our enemies. We have to take into consideration what sort of genre this is. What is a psalm other than a prayer? This is this person's prayer to God. This is their expression of what they want. This is not God telling us, at least not this part of it right here, this is not God t- telling us how to act. This is not didactic. It's an expression of... Uh, what's called a lament or an imprecation where someone's calling down a curse on somebody else. I think it's important to keep that in mind when we read. This is not indicating God's heart in the situation. It's the psalmist's heart, right or wrong. It's their raw, honest feeling. They've just seen their own children dashed to pieces on stones, and now they want that to happen to their enemies. And it's not moralizing. It's not explaining whether that's right or wrong. It's just expressing that feeling to God. That's also one of the issues. We talk about there are things in in our modern culture. You know, we say, uh, look before you leap. But then we also say, you know, don't wait or you'll be lost. There are these instructive sayings that try and help us make wise choices in life. But in every circumstance, they don't always prove to be true. And that's important to understand when you're talking about genre. I mean, genre has another huge uh, important role in understanding things like letters. And in Paul's writings in the New Testament, understanding their genre as letters is really important because when you look at the letter and understand what letters, what letters were intended for, you find that they're called occasional letters, meaning that there's a reason why Paul wrote that letter to specific people, not just because, oh, I think I'm going to sit down today and write this thing to this 
group of people for no good reason at all, just because I, you know, God's inspiring me to write this letter out of the blue. A great example of this is when Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter, he tells them that he's writing because he has received word from somebody in Chloe's household about these problems that are happening with them. And you're talking about where it says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Yeah, ha- midway divisions. through chapter one, that's that's the thing you'd heard, that there have been there are factions developing in the church in Corinth where people were rising up against each other as though they were following different leaders. And Paul had heard of this. And so one of the major things that he was addressing to them were these divisions that were being caused in the church that were causing them to lose their unification as the body of Christ. And there are several other issues with, there were problems with sexual immorality that he addressed. There were problems with Jew-Gentile relations he addresses. There were problems with the Lord's Supper. And Paul basically wrote a lot of this letter to correct a whole bunch of issues that were happening in the church. If those issues weren't real, then he's writing all this letter to imaginary issues. So looking at genre and understand the letter and the occasion for which Paul was writing helps put the context of the actual literature, the the content of his letter in its proper understanding and the way to see how is he pastoring these churches that he had uh, founded over in Asia Minor and in Greece and places like that. And what do, what function were those letters serving? And how do each one of those sections address a core concern or an aspect of Paul's ministry as an apostle and proclaiming the gospel to them? Yeah, I think with Paul's letters, it's a lot easier to figure out what's going on because you have the greeting where you understand who's writing, usually Paul and someone else, and whom he's writing to. And he's pretty forthright as, as far as reminding them of what the issues are and that sort of thing and then working through them. A letter that I've wrestled with a little bit more is First John. And that one's more difficult because it's not clear whom is receiving this and what the issue is. And it takes some detective work to figure out what sort of thing is going on that is behind the reason for writing this letter. What is the issue here? And you find clues throughout the letter that there is a group of Christians that have gone out from the community of Christians that John is part of, and they're now teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. They're teaching that you can sin, and that's okay. And and they're teaching certain beliefs and practices that are at variance with the understanding that John had received as an apostle and that he had transmitted. It begins the epistle, for example, by establishing his credibility. He's like, look, I was there from the beginning. I've seen it. I've touched it. I was there. Or Paul does that all the time, especially in Second Corinthians, where he establishes his credibility. You should ask yourself the question, why is, so, why is this person establishing the credibility? Well, probably because somebody else is questioning his credibility, like Paul with the super apostles or John with this other sect of maybe proto-Gnostics or whatever their trajectory ended up being. When you start looking at it like that, I think it helps to make sense of how that letter 
how it functions in its original context. And then when we get to the application question of how does this relate to me today, it's a lot clearer how to proceed. And I think so often, at least this is my own my own tendency, we we are too quick to jump from Bible to application without doing the hard work you're talking about. Figuring out the historical context, the literary context, the theological context, looking at the literal meaning, and really spending the time to figure out what does it mean then before we bring it up to our own time and say, what does it mean to mean today? Yeah, and you mentioned one thing there that is is worth talking about a little bit more. People always talk about wanting to interpret the Bible literally. That has been a very misunderstood concept for a long time. Going back all the way to the Reformation with Martin Luther, the idea of interpreting the Bible literally back then in what he would call from the Latin the, the sensus literalis is not the wooden, concrete, every, there's no figurative language. What it is is it means the natural meaning. The literal meaning is just the apparent meaning, the, the meaning that the text is supposed to have. And that is either what we would call uh, today literal meaning that there's no abstract concept to it there's no figurative wording no other literary devices of any type but it's just straightforward text so when you say it's the literal meaning you mean it's the surface meaning as opposed to looking under the surface for allegory is that what you're saying yeah it's the surface meaning but i wouldn't say it's a superficial meaning it's, it's the meaning that the text is intended to have, the natural meaning, okay. the meaning that okay. the author, when he penned it, when the writer wrote the words, why was he writing those words? And a lot of times people will use this word called authorial intent. And what that just means is we're looking for trying to understand what the writer was meaning when he wrote the words. Mm. We're looking to understand if he's using a figurative, if he's using figurative language, a literary device or something, an idiom, a Hebraism, whatever, we're trying to just understand how is he communicating what he's communicating and just the natural understanding of that. And sometimes the writers of, of scripture uh, will use idiomatic language and other times uh, they'll be straightforward and upfront about stating things. I mean, the one thing that I think is really cool, what is it, like Second uh, Corinthians 11? Um, it's, it's about the super apostles where he uses, he makes all these statements, but they're, they're sarcastic and they're ironic. Where he's like, you know, I wish that you reigned as kings and, and things like that because he's, he doesn't really want, he's not, he's not really being sincere. But if, you're, if you take him at a literal meaning in the sense that in the, typical conventional use of that word, then he would, you would understand Paul to be saying that he wants those people to be king, but that doesn't make any sense. I mean, right, that's he, not what he's saying. He, he's, he's intending to be figurative. He's trying to make a point saying, you know, you guys are so great and all this stuff, you know, I'm worthless. I'm uh, weak. I'm ignorant, foolish. Uh, could be first uh, Corinthians four, eight already. You have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst, we are poorly dressed. Like th this sort of section here? 
Yeah, I think so. What other points do we have about hermeneutics in general that we want to be sure people get? So, well, well, let's summarize first. Would that be all right? Let's summarize. Sure. Yeah, well, we started off talking about uh, the historical cultural context. Well, I mean, if you want to start back even before that, we started talking about that. Basically, interpretation is important because we interpret everything. Right. And because we all read scripture, we all interpret scripture, and therefore we're all involved in theology, and you can call everybody a theologian on some degree, you know, in some sense. Yeah, so everyone's a theologian. The only question is, are you a good theologian or a lousy theologian? And and not everybody's going to be able to be extremely involved, though, in the hermeneutical process. But what it is, it's about being a responsible reader of Scripture. And a responsible reader, first and foremost, is someone who thinks critically about the text and, and looks in ways as to why they're concluding a particular understanding. And well, let me let me stop you there. When you say critically, do you mean that you're judging the text and criticizing it? No, thinking critically just means thinking specifically, right? not being judgmental or critical. Critical thinking skills like just thinking about the components and the premises and the conclusions that lead you to an understanding or to an interpretation. To be able to read the Bible uh, responsibly, everybody needs to be aware that there is a historical cultural component behind the text. Much like if you read Shakespeare, if you just tried to read Shakespeare without even thinking about what Victorian England was like, or even having any idea of the way that language was used in the 16th century, you would probably be walking on dangerous ground to really try to understand a lot of Shakespeare's expressions. And a similar thing is that if we don't have like a framework and understanding of the time period of which a text was written, we'll be losing an entire dimension of of the meaning of the text. And likewise, with any literature, regardless of time, the literary context serves as the framework from in which a writer operates in communicating particular subject matters. There's always going to be some thing that surrounds a written passage that helps the reader understand what's going on, what does this mean to me. And scripture, the genre is an overarching type of understanding of form and structure to help you know what you're reading, but also the style and the actual content and progression of either the narrative story or the argumentation or the letter content of salutation, greeting, the body of the letter, the closing, the farewell comments. I mean, everything has a place to help the reader understand what is being communicated. And so when the biblical writers were inspired to write, they wrote in context and they wrote, they communicated things both within their temporal context, their historical context, their cultural context, and nobody wrote just one word in a book. And the last thing we sort of briefly talked about was a theological context. And just what that is, is kind of understanding the motives in scripture and trying to see how they're woven throughout uh, the entire Bible, because the entire Bible tells a single story, a single story of the way that God created the world, created humankind, something happened, and God is in the process of repairing that. And everything is part of a redemption story. And so the theological motives that you find throughout the scriptures have to deal with the way that God is working to reprimand humankind for their sin, and also leading them back to righteousness with him and a right relationship with him. 
And the theological motives in the different sections of Scripture pick up on the way that God has been at work in history to bring about the fulfillment of his will and ultimately the institution of his kingdom and the end times of the internal paradise. What would your advice be to somebody that says, all right, well, this seems a little overwhelming. How do I actually do this? Say I, uh, I want to read Philippians. How do I read Philippians in a more fruitful way? Well, there are several different levels that a person can get involved in to study scripture. Somebody who doesn't want to jump right in, so to say, I would recommend reading the introduction and study Bibles. Most study Bibles will have general background information on the author, the audience, the place and location of where things take place, the message and and purpose of the letter, and a little bit sometimes of its role and function in the canon of the Bible. And all those will give a little bit of background information just so people are a little more prepared to know what actually they're reading about. If you want to get more in-depth, there are Bible introductions, Old Testament, New Testament introductions that go through every single book and will give more detailed description of the background of the people, the places, the things that are spoken of. And if you want to get into like theological motives, a lot of times those uh, New Testament and Old Testament introductions will start touching on what are the major topics that are discussed or that are revealed through the writings of the various books in the Bible and how they relate to the overall story of Scripture. What do you think about telling them to read the whole all the way through and observing any clues as to context? I definitely recommend that people read no less than at least a chapter when, when you read part of the Bible, read the, read an entire chapter because otherwise you, you could find yourself at a lack of context and then grasping for straws to try to figure out what the author is talking about. And the other thing is that trying to uh, diagram or like draw out like when somebody's speaking, circle the person who's speaking. Or when somebody is describing something, underline the description and maybe draw an arrow back to what is being described. Things, Anything to help orient how the author has composed the message will help us be able to sort it and file it and understand the context. I just had this image pop into my head of a man dropped into the middle of a rainforest. The first thing the man wants to do is figure out where is he, where can I find water, how do I figure out a place to sleep and get food. You know, he's trying to orient himself. And sometimes reading somebody else's mail, you know, that it's like that. You know, we're reading, say, the epistle of Philippians. We're dropped into the middle of a situation, and we're in the middle of a rainforest. We can't see from 30,000 feet what's going on here. We just need to look around and find out, oh, okay, well, there's a stream over there and there's a bear over that way, so we want to go this way over here so that we can be safe. Not that Philippians is going to bite you or something, but, uh, you know, the idea of reading through the entire epistle and then coming back and looking at the individual trees or the individual uh, verses to determine what they mean once you have a lay of the land. Yeah, that that's definitely true. We all talk about when we do a jigsaw puzzle to put uh, to, to put together the border first to kind of just understand where the sides are. 
and everything we know <laughs> about a jigsaw puzzle, if you put the sides together, all the pieces have to fit inside that yes. somehow. And so then you can begin to actually work and understand the connection between the various parts of the jigsaw puzzle. You try and uh, usually organize colors. Then you also try to maybe organize certain shapes or things like that. As humans, we have to have a way to understand the relationships within anything. And within a text like the Bible, finding those signposts of when there are concluding statements being made, you know, like I always like to tell people when you see an and, a, a but, or a therefore, those are great places to look and try to understand what is being transitioned, what is being contrasted, what is being concluded. And, and things, you know, th that's all part of the literary context that can help try to get a grasp on, on what's going on in the text. Well, at this time, we have to draw our conversation to a close. I appreciate you being here and uh, contributing today. And uh, hopefully this will be something that can help uh, our listeners to read the Bible more productively and be able to figure out what it means originally and to us today in a uh, better way than they did before. So any final thoughts? I encourage people not to give up because it's like reading anything from the past. For example, you read uh, Macbeth or Hamlet or whatever from Shakespeare. They're not easy things, but no. it takes repetition to get involved into the, into the kind of the atmosphere and the understanding the mindset behind the, the play. Same thing with the scriptures is that it takes a little bit to get involved in the world of, of the Bible because it's so different from ours. The New Testament, the Old Testament, these things weren't written directly to us. We are recipients of writings to other people that, for example, in the New Testament, we take these texts to be normative or to be uh, governing of the way that we're supposed to live a Christian life, but they don't speak directly to us as though we were the audience originally. And so it takes a little bit to be able to get in and try and understand what was being written, why. And then the, the last part that we just barely touched on was contextualization, which is finding the application in our current lives for what the scriptures say. And, and that just takes a, a lot of understanding what type of theological principle or uh, universal meaning is lying behind why something is said. And that takes uh, a lot of patience and prayer to understand the way that scripture relates to our current day. And it takes just familiarity as well and understanding when commands or instructions are given in scripture and if they're culturally driven or if they're more Christian, like they're for the church universal, or they're if they were just given for a specific instance in time back in the first century. Yeah, the difference between a custom and a principle. Yeah. So, but I really appreciate you having me. I hope we've been able to, to give the listeners uh, a good start to understand how hermeneutics is, is important and to help to get started with understanding scripture uh, more carefully in the way that I was discussing to be a critical reader of scripture. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot, Sean. Well, I hope you enjoyed this second interview with Dr. Jerry Weirwell. We will most likely return to our Offscript series next week. However, if you would like to suggest someone for me to interview on a topic, feel free to send a suggestion to feedback at restitutio.org. If this episode blessed you or made you think, please let us know. Just visit restitutio.org and leave a comment under Interview Episode 2. Also, please take the time to give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Google Play. 
Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitudio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, full-length video classes, and a number of articles to help you in your quest to recover the ancient faith and live it out genuinely today. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.